In thinking about um, the resurgent interest in communes and trying to put polyamory in it, we might be in the middle of our next uh, social cycle. Uh, so, so sociologists have noticed that about every 60 years, the United States goes through a set of, of either a spiritual enlightenment, emotional enlightenment, expanded options, and then they sort of, you know, calm down and go back mostly to the way they did things before. And then the next new phase starts. And that's been tracked since colonial times. So in 1967, when the Supreme Court, under pressure from a lot of wonderful civil rights movement, allowed marriage, any man and any woman of any race could get married. That may have started that 60-year cycle, along with the human potential movement going on at the same time and the beat generation movement that had turned into the energetic hippie movement, they all infused a whole generation, two generations of people with the ideas that I can choose to do something with my life that's important. Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're sort of continuing on a theme from last week of focusing on elders in the polyamory community. Specifically this week, we are talking with Glenn Olson and Terry Brussell Rogers, who are authors of the new book, 50 Years of Polyamory in America. The book focuses on their experiences as well as experiences of some of their colleagues in the early polyamorous collective communities in the United States. Very interesting getting that perspective from them. Also, there are some times on this episode where they say things that we just flat out disagree with, like stances on solo polyamory or hierarchy or things like that. Honestly, that's something that has really helped us to grow over the years, remembering that we can all be allies and we don't all have to think exactly the same thing or hold exactly the same beliefs about everything. And it's okay for us to have some differences of opinion. Glenn Olson is an author and a historian of polyamory communities in America. Over the years, he has made presentations to colleges and science fiction conventions on the subject of open relationships and polyamory. Terry Lee Brussel Rogers is an author and hypnotherapist, helping clients with everything from intimacy without jealousy to spiritual growth and poly relationship coaching. Terry co-founded Live the Dream, which is an education and support group for people interested in alternative lifestyles, cooperative living, open relationships, and group marriage. Glenn and Terry, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Happy to be here. So first off, congratulations on the book. That's so amazing that you were able to compile all of this information and history into one book. So just to start off with, how did this project begin? What was your research process like? And I'm also curious how many of the organizations that you speak about are actually still around? Well, it started because I asked Glenn to join me in writing a book about polyamory. 
And he said he'd think about it. And it was wonderful when he decided, yes, he had started being an author and writing science fiction books. By this time, he was retired from the fire department. And uh, I was so glad he chose to join me. I did a little bit of research about what was out in the field. We'd already been plugged into the polyamory communities for many years and noted as authors came out and and brought out information. And uh, I determined that at the time that we started uh, thinking about our project, there were about 40 books on the market on the subject of polyamory already. And those books were all, while they were very, very good, each one of them, they all had a very small slice uh, of of what was going on. Oftentimes, it would be a, a memoir, uh, someone talking about their life path and the things they've learned. Sometimes it would be two or three people. Um, but it had a very small scope. And I said, but Terry, um, who I have known since high school, uh, we've been friends for that long. Oh, wow. Um, um, I said, if you want to go back to uh, when the project started, we could go back to when, uh, we were 15, 16 years old and we started <laughs> oh, wow. our first nest together, uh, based <laughs> oh, on wow. stranger to strange land. Wow. That, that, that's right. So, so the project had its start in, in, um, in portions. But this particular kickoff was because I mentioned, and because I'd been making, um, uh, I, I'd been doing seminars and making, uh, making appearances at colleges and, and science fiction conventions and things like that. And so had Terry. And someone said to me, um, Glenn, what do you know about, you know, the, the term primary and secondary? Glenn, what do you know about, uh, the term compersion? And I would tell them, well, I, I know who started the, the process. I know where the term came from. And at the end of the day, someone said to me, Gee, you've been everywhere and you've met everyone in the, in the polyamory communities. And I said, well, that can't be true. But when I went back to talk <laughs> with Terry, I read between the two of us, we have possibly met, um, over the last umpty years, um, the majority of the people that have, uh, uh, worked on the needs of being in, in an open, committed relationship and to being in open, loving relationships and how they found out what they were doing and the organizations they started and said, that's our book. Let's tell the history of polyamory. Something that I think really interested us about this book and, and in talking to you two is that the polyamory experience and this, this history that you talk about in the book is one that's very different from our own experience of polyamory and the communities that we've been in. There's obviously a lot of overlap, a lot of similar influencers, but so that's something that we're very curious about because these kinds of more intentional communities and things like that, real life communities, not online ones, is mm. something that you have a lot of history with. And so that's exciting for us to get more of that sort of firsthand history, as well as the history that you've researched for this. When we first started this, there was no online. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Sure. <laughs> sure. I didn't start of... having my Live the Dream meetings online until the pandemic hit. Oh, wow. wow yeah. Oh, wow. My goodness. In terms of all of the different organizations that you talk about in the book, are there how many of those are still around today? Because I know many of them are from the past, and you speak about the fifty years of polyamory. So, are are there many that are still around today that are in the book? Well, uh, we had several of them actually represented at our thirty uh, fifth anniversary of Live the Dream uh, this last uh, Saturday. Um, we, we could go from Saturday. 
when we had Oberon Zell, who was the founder of Church of All Worlds. We had um, Pat LaFollette, who was a co-founder of Family Synergy. We had, well, myself, who founded, co-founded Live the Dream. Uh, so, and then we had somebody with us who was actually part of the, uh, the Moore University when it, back in the day, it was on, or actually online with us on Zoom. <laughs> and though that's still going on, every one of those is, well, no, Family Synergy is going on, but through Live the Dream. Live the Dream was inspired by Family Synergy and I have, I have carried on its functions. Yeah, of the organizations that you cover in the book, I, I guess I'm also curious about, you know, how many of these groups are actually participating in some of that more like, I guess what we would call today, like commune style living, group living versus just being kind of educational organizations. Like, like what is kind of the makeup there? Well, Morehouse is still doing group living, isn't it? Wow. Glenn? Uh, yes, Morehouse or Moore University, uh, which started all the way in 1969, at one time grew to 27 group houses scattered around the United States. And, oh, wow. and they have taught, uh, many, many courses in, uh, communication, in human sexuality. Um, they've inspired a bunch of authors, uh, the people that, uh, wrote the 60 minute orgasm. Uh, I am blanking on their names. I apologize. Um, w- lived at a, a Morehouse for several months and did their research there with, with those people. Um, but the group living situation that, that was very powerful and, and, and very, uh, very cutting edge in the 1960s and 70s. While there are still people who are doing that, they are, they are very, very little of the landscape these days. Um, um, something interesting, the, a lot of the older people who are looking at their retirement options are starting intentional communities. And those seem to be working out. Some of those are either secretly or openly poly. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. The Zeg movement actually was part of that. And then they have the poly day caps here and a lot of different things. And, uh, they haven't, they have people that have involved themselves in intentional communities. So, yeah. So actually, I want to dive into the like group living, communes, intentional communities. So through the book, there's definitely, as you kind of track the history of all these different communities and these different organizations, there's this through line of a lot of influence by the writings of people like Heinlein and other authors who were also, you know, responsible for inspiring a lot of the general utopian movements of the 60s and the inspiration to go back to the land and go back to co-living and things like that. Um, and I find that really interesting, especially with an author like Highland. You know, I read Stranger in a Strange Land for the first time maybe five years ago or so. Jace, I think you said you read it in high school also, and it was pretty yeah, influential on mm-hmm. you. Very influential writing. And then also at the same time, reading Highland now, you know, like so many decades later, there's definitely parts of it that feels a little outdated or a little bit well-worn. And so I guess I'm, I'm interested in your impressions. Do you think that as a culture, people are moving past the idea of, oh, we can create this like utopic polyamorous community? Or is that vision still present today, but it's just in a different form with I, younger generations? 
I think the vision is still present today, and the pagan community, uh, the neo-pagan community, which its first legally recognized church was Church of All Worlds, Oberon Zell has written the uh, forward to our book, and he is so busy going to different pagan conventions that he practically doesn't have time to breathe and has now needed to move to where they are because mm-hmm. a lot of them are back east. He's moving there as we speak. Uh, they would fly him out there and so forth because they really want to hear from him. And the whole thing with Church of All Worlds is based on stranger in a strange land. And it's expanded to include various ideas like the Greek goddess and goddesses and, and the Gaia concept and so forth. But it's based on, as far as polyamory is concerned, it comes right out of Robert A. Heinlein's Stranger to Strange Land and his other books. And these are people who are doing it today, and he runs into people that are in group living situations and that sort of thing all the time. Now, I don't know what age these people are. It's possible that the younger community is doing things differently. I've heard of a lot of different ways that the younger people are living. But certainly, if you're looking at people that are over 40, yep, it's still there. We're still doing it. It's still happening. And there are younger people who come to live the dream meetings to ask how we're doing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, that's actually a good a good follow up question. Um, yeah, I think my own observations have been, especially from like working with clients, is I don't run into as many younger people who who say like you know I want to you know I want to live in a house with like all of my partners at once or I want this big like group marriage situation. I feel like I tend to hear this like slightly shifted version of it, which is which is more based on, well, I don't want to live in a commune. I just want to have my own parcel of land with a bunch of tiny houses where <laughs> maybe all my partners and friends and stuff can be, you know? So it's almost, I do feel like it's almost kind of like the same vision, but just like slightly updated or slightly like more millennialized. Well, we used to talk about in live the dream and in the loving more conferences and the world poly conferences and all of those since the 90s we were frequently talking about having a courtyard sort of situation where there was a place for everybody to meet and have dinner or have celebrations and so forth but everybody had their own little apartment that's very similar to what you're talking about Mm -hmm. and i heard that talked about right from the beginning it's funny actually because we we had this interview set up and we've been looking at your (laughs) book in preparation and just this last weekend, I was visiting a friend of mine in Los Angeles, and apparently he and his partner and some of her friends had been talking about this, like, what if we got some land out somewhere? And it, so it is very much that, like, yep, there it is again. It comes up every I now and then. It's, it's just you have to now you have to call it an intentional community instead of like uh, like co-living or or, you know, anything like that. Um <laughs> But so, well, you I, know, um, the person who is really the lady in charge of intentional community, Lois Arkin, who's still giving workshops on a regular basis on the subject, is much older than we are. And uh, she's still going strong and she's got a whole apartment building going. And I remember when that was just a light in her eye and she wow. conducted us around the neighborhood of her dreams for the future of this. And it materialized. It's there now. Yeah. So I, I've made a couple of visits when I was living in Los Angeles. I made a couple of visits to the Los Angeles Eco Village because it was actually That's it. Close That's, yes. to, That's mm-hmm. Lois Arkin. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, cool. oh, I, didn't I was there when it was a light in her eye. Yes. Okay. So yeah, I've definitely met her a couple of times. She's fantastic. <laughs> but yeah, I've done a couple of tours there. Um, and and so it seems really interesting. It's very compelling. But then I, I think about adding polyamory on top of it. 
right? Because I feel like, you know, as you have alluded to in the book, there's been a lot of intentional communities over the years that have not worked out, that have imploded in some way or another. And that's just an intentional community that's not necessarily based on polyamory and those values. And so I'm curious of, you know, from your years of watching, I'm sure a lot of groups do well and also a lot of groups not do well. What are the things that the two of you have noticed as through lines in the groups that do well with creating intentional community within a polyamorous framework? Well, there's uh, the farm, which uh, happens to be something that isn't in the book, and maybe we should have talked about it, but... It was, um, like the my husband's content for the book. <laughs> yeah, my husband has a uh, cousin who was actually uh, a major person involved in this thing, and they were there was polyamory throughout, and they lasted a pretty long time. In fact, kids grew up in that, and we were uh, visiting with his uh, his daughter, who's now an, uh, an adult with children of her own. You might be in thinking about um, the resurgent interest in communes and trying to put polyamory in it. We might be in the middle of our next social cycle. Apparently, sociologists have noticed that about every 60 years, the United States goes through a set of, of either a spiritual enlightenment, emotional enlightenment, expanded options, and then they sort of, you know, calm down and and go back mostly to the way they did things before. And then the next new phase starts, and that's been tracked since colonial times. So in 1967, when the Supreme Court, you know, under pressure from a lot of wonderful civil rights movement, allowed marriage, any man and any woman of any race could get married. That may have started that 60-year cycle, along with the human potential movement going on at the same time and the Beat Generation movement that had turned into the energetic hippie movement, they all infused uh, a whole generation, two generations of people, with the ideas that I can choose to do something with my life that's important. I can choose to um, make anything possible and bring it into my life. And some of the things they looked at were um, multiple relationships, multiply committed relationships, uh, communal living. Um, um, and some of them stayed with, uh, political, uh, ambitions and, and, and trying to make society better. And some of them went for, uh, improve the ecology, um, find, find the, the right type of herbal tea to sell to the world. Um, and so we've been in a maybe kind of a quiet phase since the year 2000 in terms of intentional communities and stuff. And that was okay because so many gains had, had taken place, uh, with our personal freedoms. Um, a person from 1970 had many fewer options that society would allow them, uh, to do in their personal lives. Uh, so if you wanted to have four lovers and, and hang out with them all the time, um, you had a lot more shielding if you built an intentional community and nobody knew what went on inside the walls. Uh, and, and, uh, therefore you were never harassed. Um, but society is a lot more forgiving of difference, uh, these days. And so that's no longer, uh, um, as much of a push. So maybe there is something new that's, uh, that's looking, uh, looking interesting to, uh, to the new generation of polyamorous. Well, I know economics is tending to drive some of it. It costs so much yeah. more to live these days exactly. that if you have to definitely. pay for, four or five kitchens instead of one, 
it's going to cost more, you know. You can really cut down your expenses and you'd be amazed at the... uh We do an exercise uh, over the years we've done it where everybody will write down how much they could afford to put down in a house and how much they could afford per month and so forth. And you, we, we come up with these amazing things like being able to get a, a wonderful 3,200 square foot house, which we are now living in and resulted from one of uh, those exercises. And we actually had people do it, move in with us and make the group house work. When writing, yeah. when writing the Live the Dream uh, chapter of our book, we talk about that particular exercise and and how people responded to it. And some people went on and actually made it happen. Hmm. Well, yeah. I think given the fact that so many people in Jace Dedeker and my generation are choosing not to really get married or uh, have children and therefore the more traditional nuclear family is kind of going away, I think, in a lot of people that we know in terms of our generation and this idea of creating more intentional communities around chosen family or around polyamorous partners makes a lot of sense to me because, yeah, I mean, you're around people that can continue to help and care for each other as they age. And I think that's something that perhaps we'll continue to see more and more of. And that's fascinating that you say every 60 years it comes around. Because here we are, yeah, since mm-hmm. kind of moving into that next next phase for sure. Yeah, I feel like I see a lot of millennials. I do think that as our generation ages and does get closer to like having to think about retirement age, you know, I mean, because statistically millennials are not saving enough for retirement. And yeah. there, I think there's kind of this assumption that Social Security is probably going to dry up by the time we're there. Combined with the stuff that Emily was saying about fewer people getting married and fewer people having kids. And so it's kind of like as those more traditional safety nets around care as you get older, I think, have disappeared more for our generation. I do think, again, regardless of polyamory or not, I think a lot of our peers are going to be in a position of having to think about that. Right. Of like, even if it's something as informal as well, maybe this isn't a full-on eco-village or intentional community, but I am going to get a house with like a couple roommates as we age together, right? And I think that we're going to see a lot more of, I think, even that informal, intentional community building happening. And I, you know, and I think also polyamorous folk are, are going to get wrapped up in that as well. In the second half of this episode, we're going to continue on asking a few more questions, as well as some questions that our Patreon supporters submitted online ahead of time for us to ask. So we're excited to get to that, but we're going to take a quick break first to talk about some ways that you can support this show. If this is content that you value and you appreciate helping us uh, put this information out there for everyone for free, taking a moment to listen to our advertisers. And if any of them are interesting to you, go check them out. That does directly help our show and we really appreciate it. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For a long time now, we've been fans of AdamandEve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection 
And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their site specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. All right. And we are back. So we are going to get to some of our listener questions. But first, so Glenn, as we were in the lead up to recording this episode, you just kind of teased something in one of our conversations about the initial historical usage of the terms primary, secondary, and tertiary. And I'm really fascinated in this because, again, these are terms that have become you know very controversial in the last decade or so. So what can you tell us about where this came from? Absolutely. And, and, I've, and I've been interested in, in watching the, as society changes and a, as people's attitudes change and in some ways become more inclusive, also um, hot buttons start appearing in, in places that we've never seen them before. Um, yes. Um, so to take you in the way back machine to uh, the late 1960s, um, there were several books that came out that uh, talked about the kind of group relationships that were built upon two people in a marriage marrying two other people in a marriage, making a four-person marriage. And um, a lot of people wondered if those fantasy book, those fantasy, you know, relationships could happen. And so that was one of the premises on which family synergy Robert was Rimmer, born. Primarily. Thank you, Robert Rimmer. <laughs> my other brain. Um, and, and, uh, and, and so family synergy was started by a whole bunch of couples who wondered if they could find another couple to marry and, and oh. form marriages. Basically full on every, have children with them, grow old together, buy houses, you know, be a real marriage. Um, the stresses of that are perhaps another podcast. Um, but what they started grappling with was we have no terminology for any of this. Who is my husband? Who is my boyfriend? Is it really my boyfriend or is it my lover? Or is he actually, and I'm talking quickly. I apologize. Uh, is this person actually my paramour? Is this, which all terms that we were working on, is this person actually my other husband? Yeah, but I haven't married him yet. Um, and and we people bumped into the the idea that how do you describe the person that's closest in your life and should that have a, ma- a name how do you describe the person that's a little further from the center of your life and and that should have a name 
So they actually went to psychology and used what were very neutral terms at the time and didn't have anything to do with the idea of hierarchy. Um, the term primary in, in psychology, the prime, your primary relationship is that person that's closest to you in all the phases of your life, whoever that person is and however they are closest to you. And in psychology, the idea was that there's only one primary relationship and everything else is a secondary relationship. So they adopted those terms. And what they really were trying to say is, I, I, I'm in a primary relationship with this person. And primary means I spend a lot of my time with them. I love them. Um, I'm, I may have commingled my, my, my income with them, buy a house with them, raise children with them. There's, they are so central to my life in so many ways. They get the name primary. Someone else I might love a lot, but I'm less likely to, you know, buy a car with them or commingle our resources or have children with them. And while I may love them just as much as my primary and on an emotional level, uh, they're not as close to the center of my life. They're actually a secondary, uh, relationship. And it was important to have those terms for people to figure out what they were doing while they were inventing all this stuff. Um, it's, that's just basically stayed, um, uh, stayed in the lexicon because they're so useful. Some people speak of non-hierarchical structure, and I believe that's actually unrealistic. How can a new person who you're dating or even one who just moved in with you be as important to you as the person who you have lived with for many years, perhaps have vowed to spend the rest of your life with, have children with? You know, it's, I found that, uh, couples who use the word, um, non-hierarchical are, sound like they're being very inclusive and, and people are, are very positive about that. Um, but when somebody who is, uh, single uses this word, and this came up for me just very recently, because as a fourth generation matchmaker who's uh, frequently asked to comment on people's OK Cupid um, profiles and so forth, I noticed that somebody I cared about had um, she had put in I want a non hierarchical couple to uh, date, and I said you should get that off your profile. I, I never promised to be non-directive. I said, get it off your profile and you will get a lot better response because couples who see something like that find that to be pushy, especially if it's the man who wants to connect with you and then his wife sees that. It, it's going to be not real good and that might be a reason why uh, somebody would stop dating you because suddenly you were they were dating you and then their wife saw the profile. <laughs> so it's... Uh, and, you know, I, I do poly coaching and hypnotherapy and so forth. So I have stuff like this coming up for me when people are, are running into these issues. And I think that the hierarchical and primary and secondary are useful terms. And uh, if you choose to marry a cu another couple or another person, triads are more common than these quads that they were trying to produce in family synergy. In fact, triads became really common. And uh, people even had children in triads. We, when our, our speaker, Pat LaFollette, was talking about that uh, a couple of Saturdays ago, they had uh, the, the, the wife had a child by each of the husbands. And you can't get more, you know, equal than that. So that wasn't hierarchical at the point where they were doing that. Uh, but 
I think you need to be able, especially when there's new relationship energy going on, say, I know who my husband is. I know who my boyfriend is and not risk the primary relationship due to the secondary one. Well, I I think what's interesting to me, kind of tracking the ways that this particular model and this particular usage of terms has shifted, you know, I feel like what I'm hearing from you, Glenn, coming out of this, you know, kind of initial structure of, ooh, let's let's have couples marry each other, where it it feels like, based on your description, is that these terms came out of how are we describing the circle of like legal and financial entanglements with somebody in particular, especially when when we're really focused on like creating a marriage unit, whether that's a marriage unit between two people or between four people or things like that. And so that's interesting. And I, I feel like where I've seen it shift and where I think people get, you know, get scared by the idea of hierarchy is I what I see in our generation is seeing the primary and secondary terms, not just being limited to legal financial entanglements, but being people interpreted as um, corresponding to like behavior, like as in how I'm going to treat you as a secondary or how I'm going to like when you're coming in as a secondary, you already have some arbitrary limits and automatically like my primary is the person who also decides those limits, you know. So like it's interesting that I think that I've seen people like because of the way the behavior has changed, it's like people push back against that. And that's why non-hierarchy becomes so popular. And then also, I think that we're sort of coming around on that cycle as well, where I, I think we've talked about this on the show before, where we also see people who are in very hierarchical relationships, who also are very kind and very ethical and create really wonderful relationships. And then we've also seen That's people true. in professed non-hierarchical relationships who are really shitty to their partners, <laughs> right? So I, I do think we are starting to come to an understanding that just professing non-hierarchy or hierarchy doesn't automatically equate to how ethical or how good of a partner you are within a polyamorous context. So yeah, that's really fascinating to kind of see that evolution over time. Some the language, yeah. Yes. And yeah, sometimes things are sometimes things are not what they appear to be. I know of a mm-hmm. um a, a group situation that looks like a man with a harem. But the fact is that his wife has the harem and only is interested in having a male partner, him, and the others she wants is female. And he is actually caring and and loving to every one of these people that are involved in his household and and care and you know and takes care of every one of them emotionally and all the rest of it. Uh, but they their primary relationship, if you're losing primaries, with his wife. So it's interesting. Hmm. And there, there are so many ways of looking at things. And, uh, if one reads Moon is a Harsh Mistress by Robert Heinlein, a lot of it is covered pretty well as to how a group marriage works and how capital can be passed on and children raised and all of that. And I think it still applies today. I don't think it's outdated. Um, I, I haven't managed to put something like that together. I'd still love to. And I know a lot of people who are looking at that as a future wish. Sure. I want to move on to some of our listener questions. We have a big community that is online that is our Patreon community. Uh, and we asked them if they had any questions for the two of you. This first one, I'm not actually familiar with, but perhaps oh, the two of you with. will be. You are, yeah, Dedeker? Yes, okay, Jason yeah. and I were like, I, I don't know what this is referring to. But I we had a listener ask, what's your take with the whole drama around who coined the term polyamory in the first place? 
please, Glenn. <laughs> I, I'm happy to take that one uh, b- because after uh, you've sent the question over to me to look at, I said, uh-oh, this is another situation where I was there. <laughs> I was sort of in the room when it happened. Ooh, oh, wow. Controversial. Sort of, yes. Um, so uh, sociologist Elizabeth Sheff has pulled together uh, two competing origin stories for the term yeah. uh, polyamory. And uh, the the one in which went to publication in 1990, uh, Morning Glory Zell, um, uh, as she tells it with the, the strong assistance of her two spouses, um, uh, wrote a, a, uh, really lovely, uh, article called A Bouquet of Lovers. And uh, that actually appears in our book as well. And she was trying to come up with a less clunky term than, uh, ethical non-monogamy, uh, multiple, uh, love relationships. Uh, we had a lot of clunky terms at the time. And so they brainstormed and to make this a very shorter, much shorter answer, they came up with the term polyamory and polyamorous. And so that appeared in print in 1990. Um, later on, uh, Elizabeth Sheff finds that, that there was a story where, uh, sometime in a time frame unknown, uh, one of the people that li- was living at the Carista commune, speaking of communes, uh, Carista, I'll really quickly mention, was a very successful commune for 20 years in San Francisco. Um, they had a, um, a charismatic leader whose nickname was Judd. And, um, he, uh, he helped, helped fashion a long standing group. Uh, the group had a family business. They were into computers, building them, selling them, repairing them. Um, and they all lived together in a group, group household and they considered themselves, here's the term that they, that they are credited with, um, creating polyfidelitis. They were many people who were committed to each other only. Everyone else was an outsider. If you were, if you were an insider, they, 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 they were part of, they were part of your family and your, and your lovers and everyone else was an outsider. So that was, that's the concept of polyfidelity. Apparently, at some point uh, during a house meeting, um, one of the participants, uh, one of the guys that lived there, also was unhappy with all the clunky terms that were in use at that time. And he apparently threw out a term, um, don't know how, how much research he did, but he just dropped this term in a group meeting. Well, you know, we have polyfidelity, why not polyamory? Um, and it is reported that he, he, uh, he said that. Um, now, during the mid eighties, I was a guest several times at the Carista compound and had a number of conversations with Judd. He usually does most of the talking, uh, <laughs> at that time. Uh, but, uh, yes, I, I had what I'll call several conversations yes, right. with Judd. <laughs> um, and in, in my time hanging around there, I never heard them use that term. So we, we, we do have a documented published uh, time of, of 1990 for the term and, and a reported time frame that we don't quite know for it coming. But here's the, here's what's really important, uh, is that, um, it's okay if more people invent the same thing at the same time in some other places of the world. This happens in human society all the time in mathematics, in chemistry, in physics. Um, 
somewhere in the world, somebody comes up with an idea or invents something, and son of a gun, someone else is working on the same thing on another continent, and the, both cons, both, both uh, ideas hit the world at the same time. You know, well, who? Well, maybe both of them invented it. So, um, it, it's quite possible that uh, that the, the term has been invented um, in multiple places spontaneously. Uh, but what we but know I is think that the, the finest prison, the finest presentation of it would have been a bouquet of lovers by Morning Glory. So, <laughs> I think she should have the primary credit for that one. That that that, she that didn't is our throw it out in a group meeting. She really did something with it. That is our fir- that is our first known published use of the term. Yes, gotcha. I mean, I love the claim from you, Glenn, of like, oh, I was in the room where it happened. Because now I feel like now we got to go out and search for someone who is like on the Usenet where it happened. Yes, you know, because right. that was the other story, right? That it was on these also these like Usenet bulletin boards in the eighties <laughs> as well. And I, I, yeah, I know there's a name attached to the person who allegedly is credited there, but I, I. Um, I forget her name. Right. Oh, so now we have three. Down. Now we have three origin yeah, wow. stories. Three. I'd forgotten right, about yeah. the Usenet one. Yeah. yeah. Goodness. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. So this next one is actually a little bit of a hybrid of some questions that a number of listeners ask. So in this book, there's a lot of primary focus on organizations, like formal organizations, right? That are assumed predominantly white, often assumed hetero communities. Um. And there's also, you know, a rich history of Black communities and organizations such as the Black Panthers, you know, queer communities and organizations who also influence the shape of American polyamory. And so I'm just interested, what do you know about that particular influence on this particular little slice of history in America? Well, first of all, uh, the, what I was talking about earlier with the... Uh, a gentleman who looks like he has a harem, they're black. <laughs> well, they're, some of their participants are white, but I didn't mention their skin color, and we don't mention the skin color of a lot of the people in our book. You may assume that they're black, white, or whatever they are, but that wasn't our primary focus. Um, my, uh, my second husband, Paul Gibbons, and I used to have a uh, buy table at the Loving More conference over the years so that my people would have a chance to see each other and and talk about their unique issues and so forth. One year, we were told we were not going to get that table. Well, I was upset, so I asked the organizer why. And she said, well, um, everybody in our community at this point appears to be either bi or bi-curious or they're embarrassed to admit they're completely straight. I think we solved this problem. <laughs> and I think she was right. So. But but indeed, I want to I want to read that book that somebody's going to write uh, about these communities. I mean, certainly um, the uh, the alternate sexuality communities, uh, the, uh, uh, the the BDSM communities, um, um, the other people that are uh, swingers, and we're going to probably ask, ask a question about those separately. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone uh, over over this period of time has had an effect on society and how we. Uh, how we adopt our our behaviors and 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 how we interact with people. So it's all been a big mix. Um, and and when it comes to the organizations that we write about, I have noticed. And and once again, I have to uh, reference uh, Elizabeth Sheff. Um, sociologists have been tracking by means of of uh, questionnaires. Who, who is interested, who is involved in alternative sexualities, polyamory, things like that. And for a long time, the only people I could find to answer these questionnaires were 
predominantly uh, either college educated or fairly highly educated, middle class or better, and and white people that had a lot of uh, resources and the ability to that they, they, they weren't fighting for the right to have equal housing with some other social group. They weren't fighting for 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 these things. So so it made sense that that these people might be overrepresented or easier to find. Um, by the nineties, um, we started noticing uh, all the ethnic groups and all all levels of the socioeconomic spectrum. Um, being more and more represented in, in the polygroups. Um, so there, it's probably, uh, pretty close to the normal, uh, society mix of, of groups in polyamory right now. Yeah, it does seem that like, I think as specifically like research recruitment has gotten better and more skillful and more appealing to people who don't fall in that particular demographic that we are seeing a much more representative spread when we do research these populations. Yeah, absolutely. That's something we talked about a few months ago. We did a two-part episode where we looked at a bunch of different research studies that have been done within the last maybe five five to ten years or so, kind of more, yeah. more recent. And uh, yeah, several of them actually, as far as the income thing goes, several of them actually showed that the polyamorous people or non-monogamous people in their studies skewed on the lower end of the income spectrum rather than that idea we had before. It's only, you know, wealthier upper middle class people. So yeah, it's definitely something that that's interesting. It's more of a recruitment issue, I think, than than actual fact. So that is cool that we're starting to see Makes more sense. of that yeah. information. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to ask our next question here, which you alluded to a little bit there, Glenn, which is uh, through this through this 50 years of of history of polyamory in America, how have the swinging and polyamory communities interacted? And like, I guess what have what have you seen as far as that? Well, is there competition um, or you know identifying each other as what they're not, or more seeing themselves as allies? We've even seen this change over the course of doing this podcast. And so I'm curious Definitely. for you in a bigger time frame what you've seen. Uh, swingers certainly <laughs> practice non-monogamy and make agreements with their primary relationships that they can have sex with other people. However, one important difference is that swingers agree not to build lasting emotional relationships with their other sex partners. In that way, the two are very different. Um, we have a, a meeting for Live the Dream um, most every year that's called Swinging black and white or shades of gray. And I, I always allude to in lifestyles conventions. I went to it for many, many years. I even won lifestyles award one year in 1988 for contributing to the knowledge of human sexuality, uh, because of my, my, uh, poly oriented recordings such as intimacy without jealousy and so forth. But anyway, the, uh, they've got a thing there called the hospitality, uh, group. And the hospitality group are uh, people who take care of all sorts of things for this convention, and many of them have been involved in that group for 10, 20 years at, at this time. And they, with, if they swing together because they happen to go to a swing party together, they might have even been strangers at one time and been swinging together, but now they call each other at three in the morning if they're in trouble, and they've gone to each other's bat mit the children's bat mitzvahs and each other's weddings, and they are really close, and they're still having sex at swing parties, maybe. But does that make them swingers? What are they now? I think now they're poly. And sometimes mm -hmm. swingers wake up in the morning and go, oh, 
I must be partly. (laughs) (laughs) I think I've seen Uh, the reverse of that happen a lot also mm. sometimes of some people realizing, oh, actually, I think it's more the swinging side for me. Hmm. That does happen. But even in family synergy many, many years ago, they, we got a whole lot of people from that, that were swingers who evolved to be polyamorists and they considered it an evolution because they added the emotional commitment to the sexuality. Terry said it all very well. Um, yes, the setup for your question, uh, Jace, which, uh, uh, indicated that possibly in the, in the beginning of this process, the two groups thought of themselves as very distinct and possibly antagonistic toward each other, uh, is, is, is quite true. Um, um, the, uh, uh, many of the, of the people that, uh, I know and, and knew who call themselves lifestylers, which, which is their internal term for, for swinging. Um, they have very strong, uh, that you, usually they're in couples. Um, it is not impossible to be a single person and in the swinging communities. Uh, but usually, usually it's done by couples as sort of a hobby. Um, and they have an enormous number of agreements between each other about what's okay, what's not okay. Um, and, and yes, they're really usually pretty darn good about keeping those agreements, but those agreements are very strict. Um, uh, we only go to parties together. Um, you know, you got 15 minutes with a person or whatever. I'm making some of this up. Uh, all the agreements, um, though, if, if one of them strays outside the limits of those agreements, there's trouble between them. And, and then they have to bring it back to, back to rights. Um, I think that early uh, swingers thought that, uh, uh, that people who practice polyamory were too chaotic. We, 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 we simply, mm-hmm. what, aren't there any rules? Why, why, you know, why aren't you? Well, yeah, we make a lot of agreements and, and, yes, but they're absolutely. looser. They're, 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 they're looser agreements or they're agreements where we want everyone to win. We want everyone to, to, uh, have the best possible, uh, you know, outcome in their lives. Um, compersion is not a, uh, a term that you'll have, you'll hear people in the, swinging community use uh compersion had to be invented or the term had to be invented uh to describe what poly people were feeling about the fact that their lover spent all night with someone else that they were uh very emotionally entangled with and then came back to me um and and i'm so happy for them welcome back either tell me what happened or don't tell me what happened (laughs) but let's go to bed and talk about it um you, you may want to leave that out of the podcast. <laughs> I wouldn't leave it out. I think that's really important. <laughs> I, I have I have actually given that advice and that counsel to people who were just opening up their marriages. Uh, in one case, uh, uh, there they were two. Uh, they were a lovely pair of people. Both of them were psychologists. Both of them were very intellectual and in their heads. And each of them would go on a date, come back, and then they would dissect the date and explain in, in excruciating oh, wow. detail to each other what their feelings were and how, how, how events transpired and things like that. And, um, I, I was blinking my eyes when they were saying this. I says, what if you just tried coming back home and saying nothing to each other, but falling into bed and bringing that lovely energy back with you to share? Oh, do people do that? 
Yes. <laughs> I like to do both. I think both are fun, though I don't think we did dissect a date. <laughs> well, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I think my impressions, and then I don't know, Emily and Jace, if you share these impressions, I think that, yeah, I think we have seen the polyamorous communities and the swinging communities maybe become a little less antagonistic toward each other, a little bit less like, oh, those weirdos over there sort of approach. I think that we're seeing more people, because I think we're seeing more people also kind of in the middle in the Venn diagram, in the overlap in the Venn diagram there. Like, I think we're seeing more people who like want to explore some form of non-monogamy, but they're not quite sure where they land, right? So they're like, oh, I don't know. I'm open to the occasional threesome, but I also have someone that I'm kind of more emotionally entangled with. Like, I don't know. Like, so I do think that that's contributing to those communities maybe being more allies to each other. I do think we still, though, occasionally sometimes, like sometimes I'll talk to a swinger <laughs> or someone who heavily identifies in a swinger. And I think there is still a little bit of this lingering, like, ooh, polyamory is like radioactive waste. Like, don't get it on you. Keep it yeah. keep it over there if you want to keep your relationship intact. I don't know, Emily, Jace, would you share that impression based on the people we've talked to? That's an interesting thing that you just said regarding, yeah, it, people still feeling as though polyamory is a little bit othered. It's something it maybe to to look at, but not necessarily to do. I do think that I've found that the lines have become more blurred over the time that we've been doing this podcast over the last mm -hmm. eight years. But it, we just actually had to, a two-part episode on jealousy, and it made me think of the question that we asked, does one feel more jealousy or more compersion if you're in a sexual situation with someone versus an emotional situation? And perhaps those who want to be swingers do better if they only are jealous in an emotional way or find that, yeah, they're, it, that's a scarier part of coupling with somebody else is only if emotions get entangled there. So that's maybe a gateway way to get into non-monogamy. Yeah, Glenn. Yeah, I, 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 I love the term gateway, the way you used it. <laughs> but, but yes, um, one thing to remember, drug. Yeah. Yes. One thing to remember is that people are not static creatures. Who, who I am today exactly. is a, is a combination of all the things I learned and, and, and experienced in the past and who I am tomorrow is going to be a little bit different based on, on what I did today. People, people can indeed have uh periods in their life when they are only able to bond with one person they'll have periods in their life when they don't want to make a connection with anybody and but a lot of uh you know pre-sex is fine um and and then there's there everyone's on a journey and and you know an, an emotional and and intellectual and life journey and these journeys um uh, it, if a person checks in with themselves and say, where am I today? It's really helpful to anyone who's associated with them. You know, if, and, and so please tell me who you are today and I will, you know, enjoy and honor that. Um, that sounded a little, I know, uh, new agey, but, uh, <laughs> but it works. I love that. <laughs> but it works. Yeah, oh, good. Um, I know we're getting kind of to the end of this, and there was a question about why is it important to look back on polyamorous history? Why is this book important? I think I'd kind of like to 
get to that question so we don't leave it out. Sure. Um, yeah. Why? And I, please let us know. I believe why that it's you find in, it important. I believe it's important because Glenn and I actually knew the people who made a major difference in the poly movement and could interview them for our book for a firsthand account of what they did. Sometimes we were in the room when they were doing it and and asked them why they were doing it. I knew Deborah Annapol, who has passed on now. I knew High Levy, the co-founder of Family Synergy, who gave us a very in-depth interview on his part in that organization and how it was founded before his passing. And we got it on tape. Um, Pat LaFollette is still with us and a frequent Live the Dream speaker, um, the other co-founder. And he gave us plenty of material for our chapter on Family Synergy. A lot of these folks will not be with us forever. Um, I, I, I will point out that, um, polyamory is a part of many people's lives. And, and it's only because of what went on before that allows it to be so comfortable for a lot of people. Um, and in, in this world where we we sometimes are worried about certain of our rights being, uh, being taken away and, and being, being lost. And, and being active, you know, to, to guard our rights is very important. I want to be, uh, I want to say that I'm very, um, very confident and very optimistic that the path our society is on, um, is, is, is a very strong one for people maintaining and keeping our, our personal rights. Um, in 2015, the Supreme Court said that two people of the same gender can marry. Now, there may be some arguments about that back and forth in, in legal areas, but that happened because a majority of the states had already been letting same sex couples, um, um, register themselves as a domestic partnership. Uh, and the state of Hawaii turned that into, you can be married. And that started sweeping the other states. And then the Supreme Court stepped in and said, yes, people of the same gender can be married to each other. Uh, um, just in the last year or so, there are a couple of towns in Massachusetts that changed their requirements for uh, domestic partnership to say it doesn't have to just be two people. It can be as many people as declare themselves a domestic partnership. And uh, that is the ground, the groundswell, the ground root movement in society that makes these major changes and keeps them uh, with us forever. So where I see polyamory possibly going is now, will a lot of people more than already are interested in doing it? Maybe not. We, it may always be a very small part of society, but if it's a choice for everybody, uh, in all its permutations, um, we don't know how many people are going to actually choose to, uh, do this at least during some portion of their lives, but it's there for us to do. I would just like to mention that it's always important to keep in mind that these freedoms that we're getting are precious. And if we have to fight for them, and we may, because we have the thing with Roe versus Wade reversed and, and, uh, the, uh, Clarence Thomas, the justice who says he's going to uh, go after other rights. I think we need to always be aware that if you need to fight for your rights, and I have done that in court personally, uh, then you just have to be willing to do it. So the the freedoms and the changes are wonderful and upbeat. And I believe in give me liberty or give me death. You got to be willing to keep fighting for it. Mm -hmm. 
Lovely. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. And just where can everybody find more about you? When is the book coming out? Where can they find the book? Uh, our, our publisher, Roman and Littlefield, shipped us our first case of books. We have an official launch date of November 11th of this year, November 11th, 2022, uh, which is also Veterans Day and a, and a national holiday. And now, now it'll also be a, a polyamory holiday. Um, <laughs> uh, 50, 50 years of polyamory is available with every bookseller that, that I, uh, that, that you can think of. If you go online and just type our, our book in, uh, you can, uh, uh, you can find it, uh, being offered everywhere. Um, the publisher themselves, Roman and Littlefield, if you actually go on their website at this time, uh, they are offering a 30% discount if you buy it right through their website. Um, mm. and, um, and, um, I've got a code, but I don't know how to get it to you. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but anybody that, uh, contacts us, uh, uh, myself, I'm glennolson.org. That's my author, uh, website or Terry uh, will give you hers and, and we can pass along all that information. And I'm, I'm Terry Lee Brussel Rogers. My website, there's live the dream.org uh-huh. for people who are, want to uh, check out our poly organization. There's acesuccess.com. For people interested in hypnotherapy and whether they want, whether they are hypnotherapists and want to learn how to help with the poly community or they just want hypnotherapy for themselves. And then there is reachforthestars.today for the guided meditations themselves in, uh, presented in a very unusual way. You should go check it out. If you want to reach me directly, you can get me at 800 goal now 462-5669 for the hypnotherapy. Or 800 life mate 543-3628 for, uh, you know, poly coaching and that kind of thing. Wonderful. Well, Glenn and Terry, it was so great to have you on today and to talk about all of these things. So for anyone who's listening, we have a question for you. This is the question that we're going to be posting on our Instagram stories this week. We've been spending a lot of time talking about the history We want to know, what do you predict for the future of polyamory? We'll be really excited to hear your responses to our Instagram stories question. Also, the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on the episode discussion channel in our Discord server, or you can also post about it in our private Facebook group. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Emily Matlack, and me, Dedeker Winston. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Bavanetta. This episode was researched by Dr. Kiana Nurse. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowork and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.